<laughs> a history of comedy. It's Chats. A history of comedy. Come and have a rummage in the archive. A history of comedy. It's Chats. A history of comedy. Come and have a rummage in the archive. Hello and welcome to another episode of A History of Comedy in Several Objects, a podcast from the University of Kent about the British stand-up comedy archive. The format of this podcast is that each episode we will pick out a particular object from the archive and we'll talk about it and actively interpret it to try and explain what it can tell us about the nature of stand-up comedy. Uh, I'm Ollie Double and this is my colleague Elspeth Miller and we are very much the Jack and Meg White of comedy <laughs> archiving. Elspeth, what's the object we have this episode? This episode we are looking at, um, I should say this is one of my favourite objects. I've said that or something else, but this is this is probably my favourite favourite. <laughs> this I, is, I'd go further um, and say this is one of the most popular items, yeah. the, the one that creates the most interest when people see it. It's uh, the Bookings book, or Bookings notebook really, which Monica Babinska kept when she ran the Meccano Club, which was in Islington. And it's really fascinating. I mean, firstly, as a person who's... I don't know, I'm not that neat, and I'm really bad at keeping a diary. Every year I'll, like, buy myself a diary. Like, think I'll keep it, and I don't. Um, but she kept this bookings book from January 1987 through to kind of early 1996. So one book. And it's basically got the performers and the compare for each night that um, she ran the comedy club. Um, So it's fascinating from the perspective of we can see who was performing when. Um, You can look at sort of, you can recognise kind of key people who who I would know from from kind of comedy. Um, They were performing in the 80s and they're still performing today, right through to the 90s. Um, So it's fascinating from that perspective. Um, and it's also fascinating from the kind of the way in which it tells us how the comedy club was run. We'll probably come on to that later. But um, some of the names from that kind of first months or so from when Monica was running the club. Again, people I know. So we've got Jenny Eclair, Kevin Day. Um, one of the things I really like, though, is Scott Capuro's phone number from 1987 is in in the front of her book <laughs> <laughs> so if we had a time machine we could go back and call Scott Capuro <laughs> um, other people like Lee Corns who we were talking about um, was one of those um, involved in that comics union with Andy Dillard well in fact I'd go further and say that there's, there's quite a few names on that, this is from January 87 and there's quite a few names on there who are from the very very early days of alternative mm-hmm. comedy so you've got Lee Corns who performed, performed right at the beginning of the comedy store, you've got Bernard Padden so Bernard Padden um, is an actor now, I believe, but was um, uh, was in early listings for you know cabaret groups and things. So he, I know that he was performing through from the early eighties through right through to the late eighties, and you know with, to quite a high level in the sense that um, I think there were shows that he it was just him and another act, you know, as a special show put on in a theatre, that kind of thing. So uh, that's interesting. There's some names that, that jump out at me. John Hegley, who was there from very early days, obviously the great comic poet. Uh, Johnny Immaterial was a great act. He was a sort of... I think his real name was Johnny Mears, and he was... Uh, 
he did a kind of comedy stand-up singing kind of act he used to have a, an electric guitar and a tiny little practice amp I mean like the size not much bigger than a pack of cards which he would strap to his belt and that would be mic'd up as well as his mouth being mic'd up and he would sing these daft songs but it was kind of anti-comedy like I remember seeing him perform at one of Ivor Dembina's clubs and he went on for ages he was the last act on and uh, he, he said towards the end of the act he said I feel like I've outstayed my welcome I only came out for some milk, <laughs> which I thought was a lovely line. Um, Claire Dowie uh, was a brilliant act, sort of feminist, sort of lesbian comedian who later did these amazing sort of one-person shows, which were scripted and the scripts are studied in you know A-level drama and things now. You know, sometimes if you see students doing audition pieces to get into drama school or whatever, they might do a Claire Dowie piece. Um, Pierre Hollins was a juggler, and I think he now just does a straight stand-up act. Mark Thomas, mm. of course. So, so a real, yeah, like you say, a real rate. Oh, that's quite a good one. Eagle Thompson. That's Dave Thompson, who's still a comic, and uh, his probably biggest claim to fame is that he was the original person inside the costume for Tinky Winky <laughs> in the Teletubbies. So is there yeah, another Teletubby comedy link somewhere. I there think is I've another, come across that at some point. There is another Teletubby comedy link. John Simmet, uh, who is, has been a very important figure in promoting Black British stand-up with his upfront comedy club. And yeah, he was uh, Dipsy, and uh, he was Dipsy throughout as right. well. He wasn't just the, he wasn't replaced like poor old Dave. Um, so yeah, there's, oh, I can't not mention Kevin McAleer, amazing Irish comic. He did this very deadpan, very surreal comedy. You can find it on YouTube if you're interested, but his act was, or the, the, the thing he's best remembered for, uh, he'd do a slideshow and he would just say ridiculous things about the slides. So one of the slides was, was four owls in a row and he would just say different things about them. Uh, very funny. We're only on the first page. That's literally <laughs> the first page. That's January '87, <laughs> and it says um, it, there's a there's a column that says who's comparing it and who does the door. So, uh, for example, the very first one, which would be the second of January '87, uh, Callus. That'll be Maria Callus. Uh, Callus spelt like the adjective mm -hmm. rather than like the the iconic uh, singer. And Jen's doing the door. And then Macabre is the second compare, James Macabre, who actually was one of the founder members of the Carno Club with Monica's brother. They set it up and then Monica took it over later. And then, you know, that goes all the way through. What, um, what I like and what Monica even said was that how messy it gets as, um, as it goes through, as kind of the scene got busier and people were kind of counselling last minute and she had to replace people. You can see people have been crossed out. And so here for example you've, you've got um, I can't read oh, well, I can read that, it's Kevin Hayes must have pulled out, that he's been crossed out and above Ed Byrne so Ed Byrne was the replacement, and then so this is in ninety six oh ninety five. This is in, yeah, this is December ninety five. Yeah, we just skip forward ages, um, and that, that that was Dave Spikey replaced by Rona Cameron, and then it was compared by Robin Ince and Ronnie Ancona was the, the the other act on the bill. What's nice about the beginning of the book is, well, as you were saying and going through, and you're talking about the different acts, is it really represents that kind of that beginnings of alternative comedy when it was really that cabaret style and you can see you've got you have got comedians playing alongside musicians and poets poets and 
other performers. Slideshow performers. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Which I don't know if that gets less as you get more into the 90s. Well, if we so stick on this page, to, so December 95, actually there is still some of that going on. Mm. So, for example, Woody Bot Muddy uh, was, did an act called The Record Graveyard or something like that, and he would play old uh, charity shop albums, you know, dreadful old records, and the audience would have to decide whether he smashed it or not, <laughs> and that was the act. And again, you can find footage of that on YouTube. Uh, you've also got Sir Bernard Chumley, uh, which is Matt Lucas. And it was a really great character act, actually. Otis Cannelloni is still still there. Yeah, I mean, he still works today, I think. Um, His act isn't straight comedy, is it? No, 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 it's props and right. all kinds of things going on in there. And Logan Murray used to do poems as well, so... Um, and Simon Munnery has, has yeah. kind of you know unusual things going on in his act. I think Dermot Carmody, an Irish act, used to do songs. Uh, Steve Murray was a, already a veteran act by that time. Steve Murray used to do a teddy bear torturing act, so he'd have like a guillotine for, for, for the te- you know he'd put a teddy bear in and the head would be cut <laughs> off, and then he would pick the body up and say, "Is he still alive?" And then it would squirt blood into his face. Um, so yeah, it's it's. Uh, um, and Dave Johns, who recently starred in I, Daniel Blake, the Ken Loach. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, uh, Helen Austin was a singing act. So there is still quite a lot of kind of variety, even in '96, and it goes right through. The, the, the last few pages seem incomplete. Uh, there, the, 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 it seems like there isn't necessarily a full bill there, and I think the reason for that was that. By the time you get sort of April, May, '96, I think that um, Monica sold the club as a going concern, including having booked it up in advance, but perhaps not completely. So, for example, um, May the 17th, she just had Lawrence Howarth as the only act listed there. So, or May the 4th, Jason Jason Freeman was the only act, and that was a half spot by the look of it. It says half afterwards. Mm. So, yeah, it's an interesting thing. Personally, for me, uh, what I like about this is I'm in it. (laughs) (laughs) So um, just before we started recording, uh, I found this page, and here I am on the bill on the 16th of May 1992, and the bill is me, Tony Allen, um, the early alternative comic, John Lenahan, magician, and compared Phil Jupiter's. Wow. And I remember it. <laughs> I remember it quite well. I remember Phil Jupiter's. I remember some of the things he was talking about. I remember talking to Tony a lot, as well as you know doing the act and watching his act. Uh, I remember Mark the Words. Mark Hurst was there, and I was a big fan of his. So I remember talking to him as well. Mm. So yeah. And and what do you think these? That's another, yeah. So it's also fascinating because it has numbers above uh, the performers, um, which turns out to be the kind of the fee that they were paid. So the McConaughey Club operated on a door split basis. And we interviewed Monica when she gave us the stuff, and she explained for us how a door split would work. Edit. I was going to ask you about the economics of running yeah. a small club. So did you do it on a on a on a movable door split or was it a fixed fee that you agreed with the act? Um, I did it on a door split. Um, if, it, if, the, if it was, you know, height of summer and there's hardly anyone there, I might occasionally subsidise it a little bit. Um, but basically it was a door split. Um, 
and I think as time went on, I think by the time I sold it, it's, it, it was on a fee, um, so that that's would, whether it's busy or not busy, that would sort of get the same thing. So they'd, you know, they wouldn't have to take the risk, but they wouldn't get the benefits if it's incredibly full or something, you know. So um, with, with um, the door split, I mean, for the benefit of people who haven't yeah. worked in that world, how did how did yeah. that how did that? Because presumably you you took a slice, and then the yeah. others did they get an equal slice? They got you? an equal slice, um, but if there was a double act, they'd get sort of one and a half probably. Um, yeah, so it was. I mean, in very early days, it was something like forty pounds, forty pounds, sixty pounds for a for a double act, and then yeah. And it would be three acts, a compare and me, so that would be the, the number of people that would be split between. And would the compare get um, uh, the same as the acts? Yeah, yeah. Edit. So it, it's, uh, it's quite a kind of cooperative venture, in a way, between the promoter and the acts. Everybody has an investment in making the show work because the money will be shared out equally as well. And we, well... You know, as equally as you can. So, in other words, double access factored in slightly differently. So, on this occasion, on the 16th of May 1992, and I don't think I'm going to get into trouble with the NNAM revenue for saying this, I came away with £50, which was the same sum that Tony got and John Lenahan and Phil Jupiter's. And so, and Monica would have taken away the mm. same. So, it's not big money, but you know we're going back sort of 25 years, so it would be worth a bit more then. I mean, certainly 50 pounds in my pocket at that age would have felt like a lot. Also, as you pointed out while we were listening to the clip, it's got my old phone number there. <laughs> I realised after I said it that it's missing a number, isn't it? Yeah, it's not a mobile number. To... Oh, is it not? Oh, no, okay. it's it's uh, it's that's the old area code. Oh, it's before okay. mobile numbers oh. became a big thing, and you know now if if a number starts oh, 07, it's yes, a mobile. Yeah. But that was that was so the area it's code. The one before the one was added. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's absolutely right. Um, so you know, it, it, it you know this is exciting for me because it's it, it sort of makes me remember that, you know, I was part of this scene too. Mm. And, I, I mean, I loved playing the Meccano. It was probably my favourite club, certainly in London. It was a, it was a cellar. Uh, cellars are great for comedy because the, the sound becomes amplified. If you play in a big venue with a high ceiling, I mean, you know, I don't know, maybe uh, orchestras or dancers or something would like that sense of grand, enormous space. Comedians don't like that because the, the, the laughter all evaporates. It just sort of disappears upwards. Whereas with a cellar with a low ceiling, for a start, it feels underground because you're literally underground. But also because the ceiling is low, the sound of the audience's laughter is amplified, so it feels incredibly exciting. Um, and uh, it, it was just a great club to play. I mean, the, the, the audience were nice. The people who ran the club were nice. Um, there, was, there was nothing to complain about, really. Um, and I think as well it's worth saying that this isn't the only record that we have of comedy clubs at this time. And we're lucky to have material from Peter Graham who runs Downstairs at the King's Head um, which has been going since 1981. Um, it's in Crouch End um, and he's given us sort of the business records really so we're lucky to have kind of the diaries sort of similar to the Bookings book as well as kind of a lot of the promotional material that he'd done so we've got lots of kind of flyers for for months really, going back from the early 90s, I think, the flyers that we've got start, which is a fantastic record. But, the, yeah, we do have a similar kind of bookings book, but it's much more spread out, so we have a diary per year. Um, 
starting, I think the earliest we've got is 85. Um, but we've got here with us the diary for 1986 and the diary for 1991. Um, what's interesting about 1986 diary is that at the beginning, it's also got kind of the figures, so that door split basis, although sometimes it was slightly Come on, Before we move off that page, can I just mm. point out, we, that, that's ah, Maria Callas, right, who yes. we had as the compare, yes. the, the first compare recorded yeah, in, yeah. in Monica's book. But also Pete Zero, who was one of the names we couldn't identify in an earlier episode, where we were looking at a list of people, where they were trying to set up a comedy trade union in 1983, yeah. and it was a sort of snapshot of the scene at that time. So in 86, he's still around, it appears. So if you know Pete Zero... Or if you are Pete Zero, <laughs> then let us know. So, yeah, that door split basis sort of seemed to have been still going on in 86. By the end of 86, though, there's no kind of figures next to the name. And certainly in the 1991 diary, there's no kind of indication that it was a run on a door split. But if we can go through and look at the names, and again, we'll, we'll be able to sort of pick out kind of f- performers who are familiar to us. And again, it kind of does demonstrate that kind of that cabaret... Um, kind of atmosphere and the, the breadth of the performers really who are performing together um, yeah absolutely so in 1991 for example we have Dembina um, either Dembina, Dembina Wilty, I presume is Nick Wilty, Nick Wilty will Johnny Immaterial yeah. you've got Stuart Lee in March 1991 Tony Allen again Lee Hurst so yeah, again, it's nice to see that, that sort of performers that are still well-known today, they're kind of early days on the circuit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, or, you know, a combination of, you know, people starting out and people who'd already been doing it for quite yeah. a while by that point, so like Tony Allen or whatever. Nick Wilty um, came over to... St- well, he, he's British, but he started his career as a comic abroad and then kind of came back to this country and became established. He's now based in Whitstable and runs a monthly comedy club uh, up in Tankerton in Kent, which is highly recommended. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I mean, I suppose what, what this shows us, going back to the point about these being cooperative ventures, is that it wasn't a kind of cutthroat business at this point, you know, from the sort of mid-1980s through to the mid-90s. It was something that people did because they liked it. You know, yes, they could make some money about, you know, from it, but it wasn't necessarily a huge amount of money. Um, and it, it probably wasn't something you were going to make a good living from, probably. Um, but, uh, but, but you could make a bit of money, but, but, but it was very upfront, it was very honest, you know, straightforward. You know, you, you come along, you get a share of the door takings. And uh, I know that when we spoke to Monica, she was talking about how when it first started, there was another partner as well as her brother and, and James Bacabra, who was a visual artist and, and, and her paintings would be displayed as part of the club. And the, that feeling of it being an artistic endeavour and something that's done for love and passion and for reasons other than just pure money, I think is writ large in here. You know, even though money is recorded, you know, it seems to me that that wasn't the main thing. The main thing is the joy of the, the, you know, the activity. Yeah, and as, she, as Monica said, she sort of subsidised it, subsidised it when, when necessary to ensure that artists were still able to take part. So in the summer, when there wasn't people wanting to spend time in a cellar, perhaps. Yeah, so it's an ecosystem, isn't mm. it? That, that you know, if there weren't people 
like we, we, we tend to think of the comedians as being the heroes of the scene and you know of course nothing could happen without the comedians but by the same token if it wasn't for the people who were running the shows you, it wouldn't be able to sustain such a, a wealth of performers because you know if we started to count the number of acts that were recorded I mean I would say there's at least hundreds of people recorded in this one comedy club's records for, for a less than 10 year period less than a decade you've probably got I'd say well over 100 different names recorded in there and those people could only do this and some of them who, who did it for years and are still doing it if there were people who would employ them I mean, what, what's sad, actually, is that when you talk to people who are on the circuit still, sometimes they'll say, the money we're paid now is not much more than it was back here. Sure. But obviously the cost of living has gone up since then. Um, so I think this is a snapshot to happier times. Uh, <laughs> times when, you know, uh, the, the circuit was still young and optimistic and varied and exciting, I think. Well, it's certainly been popular not only amongst myself and my colleagues, but um, when we, we've showed it to comedians, we need to be careful with it, actually, because we do bring it out a fair amount to, kind of to show people when we have seminars and, and when um, depositors come to visit. But we've, we've shown parts of it to Mark Thomas, Stuart Lee. Um, you took it to... Well, you didn't take the actual thing, but you took, kind I took of scans, scans um, to Edinburgh when you did the events there. and. Yeah, so we, we've done events with comedians where they'll come and I'll, I'll, we'll, I'll sit on stage with them and I'll interview them about their career and they'll be funny and then they'll, they'll you know, talk, tell stories about how they work. And this, if, if things could go slowly, this bookings book will always liven things up. Uh, we did an event with Stuart Lee and he was marvellous and uh, I knew when it was really starting to take off because when this page came up on the screen, you know, with the projection of the page. He got up off it out of his seat so he could look at it more and he was talking about all the acts and about what they did. It had a similar reaction when we did a, an event with Phil Jupiter. You know, it was suddenly you, you get this snapshot into how things were and these these amazing eccentric acts that some of a lot of which have disappeared now. Mm. Suddenly they're brought back to life in people's memories. Yeah. And also I should just say we've recorded those things so we have audio of that those reminiscences we have yes just make an appointment to come and see us um, at the University of Kent and you can listen talking of which before we go we need to tell you about how you can get involved because this podcast is not just about us telling you things it's also about you being directly involved yourself and there are various ways in which you can get involved get involved you could get directly involved in the podcast itself uh, one way is that you can look at our catalogue online and we've included the URL for that on our social media and then you can pick out an object that you'd like us to talk about email us about it or send us a message via social media about it and we will talk about that in a future episode you can also come in and visit us um, we're very much an open archive open to everybody um, not just those within the university environment um, feel free again to drop us an email via standup at kent.ac.uk um, if you really want to get involved in the podcast you could um, audio record um, something about your experience of coming in and visiting the archive and we'll play it in a future episode and there's a really stupid way that you can get involved uh, which is that uh, if you like our theme tune you can record your own cover version of it and uh, send it to us and if we like it we'll use it in a future episode <laughs> 
But that's all for now. We'll see you for another episode of A History of Comedy in Several Objects. A History of Comedy in Several Objects is devised and presented by Dr. Oliver Double and Elspeth Miller for the British Stand-Up Comedy Archive, brought to you by the University of Kent. This is made possible by the University of Kent's Public Engagement Research Fund. Photography by Matt Wilson and editing and production by Matt Hulse.